0: Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2, Electric Bukaloo. I'm your host, Anthony. One of my favorite guests, Stephanie Barbe Hammer. She is Professor Emerita of UC Riverside. Her books are funny and edgy and really smart, and there's always a magical border with them. They're always bordering the magical imagination. She's got a new novelette out that you're going to want to check out. It's called Rescue Plan. That's with Bamboo Dart Press. Today, Stephanie and I are covering Sansa. Sansa's her favorite character, and of course, I love to have people cover their favorite characters. The interview just gets so interesting for me, anyway. Steve and I cover episode 5 of season 5, Kill the Boy. And finally, in my Bird's Eye View section, I give you answers to that conundrum that I posed earlier. What do we do with the two different ways to create a knight in Westeros? I've got answers from Elio Garcia, from Carol Parrish-Jameson, so stick around because I have the answers. Without further ado, here is Stephanie Barbe-Hammer.
2: Absolutely 100% correct. I am Team Sansa all the way. (laughs) Do you know
0: other people like you? Because I think you're somewhat unique.
2: Well, thank you for saying that I'm somewhat unique. Um, there, there, are, there are some of us out there. It's perhaps a somewhat smaller group, but it's a pretty passionate group okay. Okay. of women, men, and non-binary folks. Oh,
0: oh very good. Very good. All right. Santa fans. I want Just- to hear about that now. So it sounds like Team Sansa is something like a, a perennial underdog.
2: Well, um, I'm not sure I put it that way. What I'm going to do is I'm going to quote the observation that my daughter made about Sansa. I'm not going to name my daughter; she prefers not to be named okay. in these social media things.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah.
2: But uh, she said something like the following. She said, "You know, Sansa is amazing because she is actually the one person in the book, in the books, who is operating according to." courtly manners and courtly rules and regulations. Mm. And she's the one woman who totally does that. She has no special powers. Mm. She has no, she has no dragons. She is not a swordsman. She has her wits Mm -hmm. and the rules spoken and unspoken of the court. That's what she's got to work with.
0: Right. Well, okay. So this here, and here's our first problem, right? Because in many ways, these books are meant to subvert the kind of social norms that Sansa thinks are paramount, and not not in every way, but in a lot of ways, Martin is basically trying to show that the mythology of, you know, gallantry and chivalry and all of the rules about what a knight looks like and fairy tales, that this is not the real world and to believe that is is naive right so absolutely so sansa absolutely. is sort of in a one down position from a lot of readers perspectives
2: right as all women were in the middle ages she is absolutely the quintessential medieval woman if we think about eleanor of aquitaine we think about the various princesses of france they're all in the sense of position, which is what I think makes her as a character all the more fascinating because she has a sort of a historical uh, contextual basis. Mm. And we spit to come back to your point about Martin saying, well, here are all these mythoi and rules, but they don't work. Right. We see that operating precisely in the chapter that we're gonna be talking about.
0: Excellent. So I'm excited to do that. All right. I'm going to do a brief synopsis of the chapter and we can get into it. Great. Okay. Here's my synopsis. Sansa is regaling Jane Poole with an account of her time at court. She's perplexed that her father did not send Loras to hunt down the mountain for his crimes. Jane suggests that Beric Dondarrion wasn't such a bad choice, but Sansa knows better. The two find a strawberry pie and gossip into the night. The next day, Sansa and Arya argue again over the Joffrey incident, and her sister ruins Sansa's silk dress. The older sister maintains as much dignity as she can on her way back to bed. Once alone, she cries herself to sleep and dreams of her dead direwolf lady. Then she is summoned by her father. Ned tells his two daughters that they must return to Winterfell. Sansa is convinced that this will ruin her life before it even begins. So Stephanie, Barbie Hammer, do you want to talk about a character, a theme, a plot point, or shall you and I just climb the ladder of chaos?
2: Well, I think let's start with talking about the character, since I've already identified myself as as a big uh, as a big yes. Sansa fan. Yeah. Good. Um, yes. So let's maybe chat about that. What I love about this chapter is that we she's very young. She's a young girl and she's in some ways a silly young girl, as young girls often are. But we already in this chapter see that brain at work, see her noticing that difference that we just spoke about between what the myths and legends are supposed to be and what reality is, Mm -hmm. between what people say they are and what they actually do and that sense of brain those powers of perception are going on all the time um that we see that right at the beginning where she talks about how she really is is a is a, a sir loris fan and of course who isn't he's ridiculously handsome because he is physically One of one of old man's stories brought to life. So technically, he should be the perfect choice. So we see her going, "Well, here's the story. Here's the person. He looks just like the story, so it should be him." And that is going to be debated shortly. Then we get a mention of Lord Baelish, and here's a great example of Sansa. Oh, again, young girl, sheltered girl, already going, "Mm, something's wrong here. Um, Baelish bows to her and she doesn't like how deep the bow is. (laughs) She doesn't know whether she's
0: being, um, what what does it say?
2: Complimented or mocked.
0: Yes, complimented or mocked.
2: That's a perceptive person.
0: I'm going to read this little section here. I love that you brought this up. Lord Baelish stroked his little pointed beard and said, Nothing? Hmm. Tell me, child, why you would have sent Sir Loras. Sansa had no choice but to explain about heroes and monsters. The king's counselor smiled. Well, those are not the reasons I would have given. But he had touched her cheek. His thumb lightly traced the line of a cheekbone. Life is not a song, sweetly. You may learn that someday to your sorrow. Sansa did not feel like telling all that to Jane. However, it made her uneasy just to think back on it. So she's, she's thinking back on this, um, <laughs> this exchange she had with Baelish, but she wants to put it in the back of her mind, and she absolutely doesn't want to present that view of herself to Jane, who I think at the end of the day she wants to impress Jane
2: Yes, exactly. When of course she's more highly ranked, we're back to the middle the, yeah, yeah. the medieval. She's more highly ranked than than Jane Poole, it, Jane Poole is. So it's a power dynamic that that kind of messes with her status, but I think the other this is why Martin is such a fabulous writer. The other implication is that she doesn't like thinking about it again because she senses something's up with this something's wrong right and oh is she right about is she are her gut instincts fantastic
0: i loved i i don't know about you but i laughed so many times reading this chapter this little section just got me i i'll I'll read it uh here it says so sansa's (laughs) sansa is sort of recounting to jane her experience observing court Jane yawned. Are there any lemon cakes? Sansa did not like being interrupted, but she had to admit lemon cakes sounded more interesting than most of what had gone on in the throne room. Let's see, she said. The kitchen yielded no lemon cakes, but they did find half a cold strawberry pie, and that was almost as good. They ate it on the tower steps, giggling and gossiping and sharing secrets, and Sansa went to bed that night feeling almost as wicked as
2: Arya yeah (laughs) i love that i love that passage i do too it's again a wonderful portrait of 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 sansa and her friend as girls
0: yeah right right right
2: um and and Jane saying okay this isn't so interesting and sansa who's a who's a who's a cool enough kid to go oh but i'm talking but yeah you're right it's really boring all
0: right now okay so (laughs) we're gonna find a little bit of friction here this will be good I'm going to push back against Team Sansa. I think that she is horrible to Jane. I think that they're friends on a very superficial level, but I don't think Sansa really cares about Jane Poole. I think that she does feel herself superior to Jane Poole in a way that Arya never felt about Micah. You know, they, they definitely have a difference in Social Station. But Arya doesn't want to live by that kind of rule. And Sansa absolutely wants to live by that rule. So much so that when Jane says, you know, Beric is kind of handsome and I've got kind of a crush on Barric, Sansa thinks, this girl is a fool! There's no way that Beric would ever be with someone who is a steward's daughter. And she almost sort of, in her quiet self believes that Jane is below her and naive.
2: However, she doesn't say it. (laughs) She thinks
0: she doesn't, she doesn't
2: say it. And again, I underlined this because I think it's quite important. Again, it's, she does think she's superior Mm -hmm. arguably in that world. She is in terms of rank. Yeah. And she's probably right about Lord Beric. Mm -hmm. It's not a kind thing to think, But it's an accurate thing to to think, probably. And note, it would have been unkind to say so, however. So Santa took a sip of milk and changed the subject. (laughs) And again, that's courtly. It's the Book of the Courtier, Castiglione, who was writing past the Middle Ages, but this is absolutely right out of Book of the Mm Courtier. You cannot speak in an uncivil way to someone, Mm -hmm. even Mm -hmm. though they are... Uh, inferior to you in terms of their courtly rank and again it shows a certain kind of intelligence of understanding how those rules yeah work. that's a
0: good point and you know i just made the point recently that there's a difference between Tyrion's interior thoughts and what he will enact in the in the world right so he has this right. this these two voices that are that are both him but, yeah. but he he's learned to sort of not act on every inclination that he has. And uh, and I, so I take your point about Sansa. She certainly does have that inner voice, but the way that she acts is different than her inclinations sometimes. Right. and
2: i I love uh, Anthony. I love your bringing in Tyrion because they certainly, I mean, at certain points, become allies. Right. Uh, we'll see. And they share a certain. Of course, he's incredibly smart and much older, but she is smarter than she looks mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. smarter mm-hmm. than she acts sometimes. Because remember, she's a she is a spoiled kid. Um, but I think she's al- already here. We're seeing that that um, gap between. This is what I think, but this is that's not what I'm going to th- going to say. Very much unlike her dad. And this chapter uh-huh. is sandwiched in between two of Eddard Stark chapters. In-
0: interesting. So yeah, you're saying that, that Ned her. has not learned this lesson that Sansa has learned pretty quickly. Correct.
2: Correct. She's already smarter politically in certain ways than he is huh. because the chapter before this, we see him operating as the hand of the King. Right. Right and and just motoring through those decisions although there's all kinds of political stuff you'll talk about it when you get to that chapter of course all kinds of political goings on and varus saying um sir um what about this um what about this shouldn't this problem this mess up with the hold fast and the murder of several people shouldn't this be dealt with by local people uh isn't there another way to think about this and Eddard just goes nope 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 the king's justice right. nope 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 and the next chapter is that very important conversation with um Cersei hmm. about hmm. about her kids and the parentage of her children oh
0: that's right
2: that's where right. he just goes look 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 this is what's going to happen this is what we're going to do and she, you know, has her resonant line that I'm sure you'll discuss, you know, there's, you, there's no middle ground with, with the Game of Thrones, you win or you die, that's
0: it. I wonder if there's something to be said here about your, someone's relative power in the kingdom uh, in relationship to whether their inner voice can be their public voice. So I'm I'm thinking, for instance, like Robert, who's the king. He can say whatever he wants with very little consequence, and right of course until there, the big one, uh, until until the big consequence, right. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. So there are consequences; it's just different consequences. But yeah. for instance, Ned, as hand of the king, if he feels like he needs to speak a hard truth. He just has to consider the consequences differently than someone like Sansa, who as a woman and a a child, although a highborn child, the consequences for her speaking out of turn are much more severe than for someone like Ned.
2: Yes, I think that that's true. And she seems to, again, already glimpse that. Yeah, yeah. It's why she's so careful with Lord Baelish even though she doesn't like what's going on, but she totally gets that she can't show that she, she can't, she's got, she's got to put up with him stroking her cheek and that uh, other little creepy stuff that he does. (laughs) She'll (laughs) have to put up with that.
0: Right, right, right. Whereas we were comparing Sansa to Tyrion or a little bit earlier. And, you know, while Tyrion does have a different inner voice than he, than the voice he presents, he does have a little bit more leeway, to say what's on his mind and be more body and you know just you know make make jokes that it would be untoward to make. So his relative rank in the kingdom allows him a bit more freedom than someone like Sansa would have.
2: Absolutely, and he's male. Even though, even though he's a little person, he's male. That's right. So he has male privilege, which is crucial in this world. And Martin's very clear on that.
0: Yeah, adult male, and he's. If he's not very wealthy, at least his father is very wealthy and very powerful.
2: Right. He belongs to House Lannister, which is really the power, literally the yeah. power behind the throne. Right. right, right so right. he is going to, he is, he has a, a certain amount of freedom that other people don't have. I love
0: that Sansa, this is another laugh point, but I love that Sansa is looking at Barrick Dondarian and thinking, yeah, he's fine, but he's so old. I mean, yes he's like 22 years old that's like ancient
2: (laughs) yeah yeah and again that's a wonderful reminder here we really see the artfulness of martin's characterization he never lets us forget that she's a kid Uh uh-huh she's she's you know she's got the various flaws that we've been talking about she's got the intelligence that that i in particular have been stressing but she's a kid so she's going to eat that strawberry pie. And, and you know, she's because what kid doesn't want a treat? There's no kid in the world that doesn't want a treat. And so and the the age comment reminds us, oh, yeah, she's really young. She's a kid. So,
0: Stephanie, this was the second reason why I wanted to cover this chapter with you, because in your own work, uh, you have really, to my mind, really captured the inner voice of the child really well in some of your characters. And I think it's really difficult to do because it's like these children, children in the real world desperately want to be older than they are. Right. Yeah. So they want to, they want, and they don't feel like they are in general, they don't feel like they're too young to think over important issues. Although people might treat them younger. They, they feel like maybe they're, they're misunderstood. And yet they're still immature, and it just seems like a really tricky thing to try to capture as an adult writing as a child. And I'm wondering if you could say a little bit more about your own experience uh, writing the inner voice of a child.
2: Oh, gosh. Um, thanks. Yeah, I do. I do write about about uh, kids and kids' points of view. The most recent um, book that I put out is uh, features a 15-year-old boy who is by curious. And I have a novel coming out next spring, which is the entirely the point of view of a 13-year-old girl. And it's interesting for me to think about that in conjunction with this conversation, because I'm wondering if the Sansa character hasn't influenced me in certain ways as a writer.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And So that's the cool thing to realize. But I think that one of the things that I think about Uh, when I write kids' points of view, and I imagine Martin thinks about this too, um, or has incorporated this idea, is remember that the notion of childhood is a modern one.
0: Oh, yeah. The
2: whole idea of the child as a separate kind of person who has a very different inner life and a whole set of developmental stages that have to be ministered to, that's 18th century and of course the person who really writes about this is jean-jacques rousseau Hmm. wrote these important books about education um but so the child as this very particular kind of individual doesn't exist in the middle ages um, you know, p- kids, uh, uh, your offspring are small and then they get bigger and you train them to do adult things as soon as they're big enough to do them, um, particularly if we're thinking about farm work and so on. But even horsemanship and, and swordsmanship and these other things mm-hmm. for the women, sewing and certain kinds of um, activities that require fine motor skills. So as soon as the per- your offspring has the motor skills to do that, they learn how to do it. So, um, keeping that in mind, I personally I write my my kids' points of view as though they thought they were fully cognizant people who can who are who are able to comment the world, and they don't reflect so much. On the fact that they are kids, although my, my my heroine in this novel coming up does do that occasionally, but that's because she's neurodivergent and, and thinks a bunch of different thoughts at the same time.
0: Okay, that's really, actually, it's really helpful when viewing this book, because I think a lot of times my own inner voice is a little bit critical, like, I don't know, but I don't know if, if the kid... This is how someone would treat their child, or you know, for instance, famously Ned bringing his eight-year-old son to a beheading, that kind of thing. Right. right. Um, so what you're right. saying is really helpful to me. Absolutely, it's helpful. Um, at the same time, from a psychological perspective, you know, we know that the human mind doesn't develop. <laughs> isn't fully developed, you know, it could be, you know, until 25 really. So um,
2: how do you incorporate that part of it? Yeah. I'm, I'm smiling as you're talking, because of course, you know, the, the, you know, thinking about kids, um, it explains a lot of the middle ages, doesn't it? Because we have all these people who become Kings at 12. Well, (laughs) no wonder Right? No wonder it's yeah. a catastrophe. Yeah,
0: their you know, nobility is so much more important than sort of their life stage, I suppose.
2: Right. So you have very, very, very young people with tremendous amounts of power. And again, the the, the character of Joffrey, who we're not supposed to talk about because that's a different chapter. <laughs> but he's a wonderful example of, oh my gosh, this is why you don't put kids in charge you know ever because <laughs> yeah. yikes, it I could go well, really can... wrong.
0: I mean it can go really wrong with adults too but Joffrey's a great right. example of that. right
2: right 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 so um but it makes me think of that book uh, what is it um Bar- is it no it must it's Barbara Tuckman um the um a distant mirror which is about um fourteenth century Europe and' is just you know, if, if everybody, most people die at 30, right. You know, then people, you know, somebody like, like Bran, you know, he might be expected to take over at 10 years old. Sure. He's eight, but it could happen. So he needs to know what a beheading looks like. Yeah. Cause he yeah. may have to do one or have someone help him do one at 10.
0: Okay. So then the other part of this question was, um, sort of Martin's famously has brought to us so many interesting female characters and yet he's, he's a male first and foremost. I wonder what's your experience with women characters written by men?
2: Oh, that's a great question. I think it de- of course depends on the author and I think some men write women characters fantastically well. Um, I think Martin does a remarkably good job with his, with his characters. And um, I don't think we're, we're probably not supposed to talk about the TV show at all, but um, I think he as an author is more successful than the TV series is. Well, Um,
0: with with Sansa in particular, I think that that's true. I think that because we don't hear that inner voice, and this is just the problem with, you know, television, I suppose, because yes. we just don't hear that inner voice with complexity. It's impossible to to know how much Sansa is observing and making decisions uh, where right. we just we just see what she says and how she, you know, how right. she looks. And for the most right. part, I think that right. they just portrayed Sansa as sort of an immature well, in, in all of the ways that Peter Baelish and the Hound and Ned view Sansa, that's kind of how we the viewers view her.
2: Mm-hmm. Although the actor I think really pushes against that and does wonderful things with that portrayal. I think yeah. actually all the act all, all the female actors are great. Um, but yeah, I back to the inner voice question. Um, I think that that's a crucial aspect to the kind of characterization that Martin is doing. And arguably the Daenerys character in the books is more effective too, because we can see what's going on in her head mm. um, and all of the things she's thinking about, um, as opposed to just seeing her, you know, gr- meet the dragons and so on. Sure. Um, sure. We have much more of a sense of, of, a com- of a complex, and layered um, inner life. Again, I think that that's something that, that Martin is, is very good at. It's one of the reasons why I, as a literary writer who write predominantly magical realism, really enjoy him as a popular literature writer because he, is, he has all of these very sophisticated um, characterization techniques that he's able to seed through a chapter. Hmm. And we've just been talking about a few of them in this one. Um, so the the um, difference between Sansa's inner voice and what she actually says, the continual reminders that she is a kid and these, these setups where we see her negotiating sort of class and privilege um, power dynamics.
0: Hmm. Here's an example of the inner voice again. I didn't do anything wrong, Sansa pleaded with him. I don't want to go back. She loved King's Landing, the pageantry of the court, the high lords and the ladies in their velvets, and silks and gemstones, the great city with all of its people. The tournament had been the most magical time in her whole life, and there was so much she had not seen yet. harvest feasts, masked balls, and mummer shows— She could not bear the thought of losing it all. Send Arya away. She started it, father. I swear I'll be good. You'll see. Just let me stay and I'll promise to be fine and noble and courteous as the queen. All right. So you hear an example of the voice she's using with her father, but then her inner voice is all about how she's fallen in love with King's Landing. And you don't learn till the next paragraph that it hasn't occurred to her in the slightest to think about missing Joffrey. And so the no, po- it hasn't right.
2: that's a great point. that's a wonderful point. so yes.
0: I was just thinking she absolutely has fallen in love with the idea of being a great lady at court. yeah, she is not in love with Joffrey.
2: no, I, I think that that's a one that's a fantastic observation. The other thing I think I'd just add on to this is what we see here. I'm not sure we see it for the first time, but we certainly see it in a very, very clear and passionate way, a young girl's longing for the larger world. Mm -hmm. She does not live in a large world. And again, we're back to the sort of situation of women who lived very constricted lives in the the middle ages. And so the larger world that they could live in is a world that they could observe and watch and she wants that so passionately and so sincerely and it we feel or i feel as a woman reader i feel her desire for that larger world i get it i understand although i as a reader already have tremendous doubts about king's landing (laughs) (laughs) i get why she wants to stay yeah
0: she views yeah she views winterfell as this cold and gray place where they're going to lock her away forever. That's not oh. really true. I mean, it may be cold and gray, but she's she's absolutely privileged in Winterfell. Absolutely.
2: Style. But unfortunately the things that Winterfell has to offer her those qualities and capabilities are at this point not things that she values. Right. And that's her at, that's her immaturity showing and her uh, overly privileged um, worldview showing okay. that she doesn't appreciate those things.
0: So notable introductions in this chapter uh, this is a category we usually do just to call them out as we see them for the first time. I didn't see any. I think this is the first chapter where I don't see like a new character introduced We don't see, uh, you know, a new object. I mean, we could point to the strawberry pie, but it's like it's not nearly as interesting as some of the other introductions. And I suppose it is that we're far enough along in this book that you don't necessarily need to keep introducing new concepts. It could be that the job of world building has basically been done for this particular novel.
2: Yeah. Well, the what I would again, I yes, you're right, there are no new characters introduced here. And that is interesting because there's so many characters in this world. Yeah. Martin is continually having to very skillfully create these exposition paragraphs and chapters so he can get all of these people on stage. Because right. he's just got a cast of thousands, right. literally. But I do think that um again, this is why, you know, female readers have some use the dress is crucial oh all right the spoiled dress <laughs> the spoiled dress that the queen gave her sure, sure. so it's the mark it's a beautiful expensive gift but it's also a mark of power yes it that the dress
0: represents her engagement to joffrey
2: right and her eventual access to the Queenly Station because uh, the Queen has given the dress to right. her, yes, and it's spoiled, and that is really a harbinger of woe. Right. That- okay.
0: So, and and it's exactly Arya who spoils it, right? It's right. <laughs> it's this unfortunate tension that the two girls still have over this over uh, an understandably traumatic experience. Um,
2: mm-hmm. You
0: know, Arya. I guess you could say both girls learn that their father is not all powerful. Right. The father can't solve the problem. Yeah. And uh, both girls lose their wolf, you know, in, in different ways, but they, they lose the wolf and this becomes a rift for them. And of course, so Arya, Arya is appropriately the one that spoils the dress.
2: Yeah. Um, But I want to come back to the wolves because we've been talking a little bit about the middle ages and women the dire wolf lady mm-hmm. is the, is the, is the innocent victim. Yeah. And the perfectly behaved wolf, <laughs> the wolf who eats daintily from Sansa's hand. Right, right,
0: right.
2: And yeah. that's again, Martin's wonderful, brilliant way of, of, of saying, Oh, look what happened to lady. What's going to happen to her owner.
0: Okay. I want to talk about, yeah, I want to talk about lady too. So in this chapter, after the dress is spoiled, she holds herself upright, does not cry in public. She walks back to her bedroom. She cries herself to sleep. And then when Septa Mordain comes to collect her, halfway between waking, she has this, this sort of little half dream of lady looking at her. Yes. What do you make of that?
2: Isn't that a fascinating little weird moment? Yeah. Um, again, as a magical realist, I love this kind of thing. It's like, you know, is it a real spirit or is it a dream right. or is it, you know? But it's, I think it's just that little reminder um, of what happened to the dire wolf. And it's, as I was trying to kind of indicate, and you've given me a great entree, it's Martin's little foreshadowing Here's what happened to one lady. Yeah. What's going to happen to this one, the one who's the dreamer? Sure. What's going to happen sure. to her? Yeah. Because things do not seem to go well for the, inno- for the innocent and the perfectly behaved.
0: Right. Yeah. She When she realizes that it's a dream, I think the, the text says, and then lady was dead again. Yes. Yeah, so for, yes. for a moment, yeah. lady was alive with her. Yeah. And she yeah. has that connection. I yeah. mean, sometimes I view these direwolves as sort of the Starkish identity. You know how, like, uh, mm-hmm. sometimes like Frodo will embrace his Tookish side. Mm-hmm. You know, he feels adventurous, and he's yes. like, you know, yes. he, he's sort of living into his Tookish identity right. over against it's the his bag. The family coming out. Right, yeah, right, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Sometimes I view these these wolves as you know they're connected they're connected to these characters to ground them or anchor them mm-hmm. back in their stark or winterfell identity. Yes. And yes. I always well, viewed Yeah, I always viewed Lady's departure as well Sansa's now adrift. She's lost her anchor. She's she's a yes. woman in King's Landing now. She's not a Stark.
2: Oh, I think that's a great point. She's lost her her grounding. Yeah. And she seems to sense that because she's noticing things, but not noticing things and, and trying to do what's necessary, but having these sort of weird sort of second thoughts Mm -hmm. that come Mm -hmm. in about and feeling these nagging doubts about things, nagging doubts about Lord Baelish, what's his story. And, um, Again, another moment in this wonderful chapter of she notices but doesn't quite put two and two together Mm -hmm. is her resonant remark that um, Joffrey looks nothing like his father. Right.
0: Yes. I think that's the key. I think that that's sort of the the key moment of the chapter. Yeah, because Sansa sees very clearly that Joffrey is a lion and not a stag. Right. Yes. And it has taken Ned forever to realize what that means. Right. Yeah. And so he says out of the mouth of babes, it's sort of Ned's aha moment. Yes. But he needed Sansa's eyes to have the aha moment.
2: Right. Because he's not perceptive like she is again, back to um, that her chapter being sandwiched between the two Eddard Stark chapters. He's such a good person. Mm-hmm. and an honest person but he is not politically astute and he is weirdly non-perceptive in certain ways probably because back to your comments because he could afford to be he hasn't had to be right. that perceptive yeah. in that way and he's a soldier so he's got he's got those wonderful instincts and uh, and abilities but perception and noticing people and noticing things that he's not so great at. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, Steph, I knew you were the perfect person. When I read this chapter, I was thinking, oh, I have to get, I've got to get Steph back on to talk about.
2: Yay. I'm so happy that I could come back. It's been such a pleasure to discuss it with you, Anthony. Likewise.
1: And who knows, that dedicated fan could even be you. Treat yourself. Check out support.baldnew.com for more info.
0: And now Steve and I cover Kill the Boy. This is Season 5, Episode 5. We've got Bloodsport and Marine, Stan is at the wall. And Sansa back at Winterfell. But under new management. Just a word about Steve. Steve is going to be doing a set at Cobb's Comedy in San Francisco in the next week. He's going to be hosting for Kevin Nealon. So I'm sure that's going to be a magnificent show. As always, you can find out more details by following Steve on Instagram at OzFest. That's at A-U-S-F-E-S-T. Here is comic Steve Osborne. <laughs> Steve, have you ever had a debilitating skin condition that drove you crazy and made you murderous? Um, I don't
3: recall. Um, I, mean, I got a bug bite once in a weird spot. Eyebrow.
0: <laughs> Were you with our mutual friends when one of them got a leech on his junk? No, I was not. All right it was a different group of people yeah also stand by me yes it it happened in real life and on stand by me and game of thrones and game (laughs) indeed i you know what steve i i don't think i've got anything bad to say about this episode i just finished watching it okay like right before we got on and um i mean very, very mildly. I'm I'm still yawning a little bit at the Grey Wern uh Masandy love love. Sure. Fun. Yeah. But aside from a yawn, I mean this this episode was fantastic.
3: So there's like so we've had a couple of these.
0: You know, this this episode had zero Dorn,
3: right? Zero and that so you wonder, so like taking a quick look back. I mean, we're on episode five of this uh of this season, the much yeah, maligned yeah. Uh, season five. Um if you subtract the Dorn narrative, I think you have a, a decent season, right? I mean, I don't think we've had anything. I mean, we've had some, some, like you said, questionable. Like I don't know if, if Barristan's death really matters a lot, but I mean, that's you know, that's okay.
0: Uh, I think so far, I mean, let's say we're so we're halfway through season five. So far, there was maybe one dog of an episode. Yeah and and it probably did just relate to the dorn stuff right you know i don't the stuff that's going on with aria is kind of a slow build at this yeah point. not not quite yeah. as exciting as her and the hound murdering dudes on the road right
3: well I'm definitely is testing my i think earlier statement i'm just like i can you know it give me any aria subplot and i'm in this is definitely going to put that to the test i think because um feel like we've come a long way with it. But here's, here's where, you know, my, uh, my concerns are. Right? I mean, and I keep asking, like, where are we at compared to the book? And, you know, you keep mm-hmm. saying we're, we're, we're diverging more and more. So then we start going into territory where I'm like, okay, now I have to trust the showrunners that they are in tune with these characters enough that the arc that they're going to give them... Mm-hmm. Uh, is going to feel satisfying and they're not going to undo mm-hmm. any of the work. And I think we, we've had some of those questions already with um, with Sansa, right? Is, is I, I feel like we keep getting these false starts. Mm-hmm.
0: All the stuff at Winterfell is not happening in the books at all. Right. So that's yeah, all, yeah. it's all made up. Most of the stuff that's happening at the wall is really true to the books. Okay. And a a cu- couple characters are a little different here and there, but I guess it, You know what? There is one thing at the wall that is a little interesting uh, in that there's a little bit more magic going on. Mance Raider doesn't die. Okay, well,
3: that seems pretty big.
0: Do you remember that guy Lord of Bones? Oh, yeah. (laughs) You know, good old Lord of Bones. Mm -hmm. So I guess uh, Melisandre was able to glamour those two into separate bodies or something, or at least it it made them look like they had swapped bodies. (laughs) And so the guy that they burned alive was actually Lord of Bones.
3: What was was the rationale for that?
0: Well, they wanted to keep Mance around, but they wanted to show that, you know, if you're not going to kneel before the king, then you get burned or something like that. Gotcha. So they killed Lord of Bones, and then they glamored... Mance Raider into Lord of Bones is like, you know, like a bone armor. (laughs) Oh, okay.
3: (laughs) So he becomes Skeletor.
0: He becomes Skeletor. That's right. The stuff with Danny, Danny, uh, it's similar. It's similar to what's going on. The big deal with the fighting pits. So the fighting
3: pits is in the book?
0: Fighting pits is in the book. And also the dragons not being controllable. That's also in the book. Uh, I think if I'm going to take
3: one exception, I'm just not understanding why. Why Marines got to have their
0: sports, man? <laughs> I mean, you of all people should know that if you take sports out of a culture, people get really bored and upset.
3: I yeah, I guess. I mean, it, it just seems like a very odd thing to to focus on because they
0: they got fantasy leagues they got betting circles well i guess the
3: question for me is Stephen a
0: smith has (laughs) has a big talk show in marine
3: would we as a society feel the need to have fantasy sports if we lived in a fantasy realm
0: yeah i mean i don't
3: know i mean i'm just like we would have
0: a fantasy dragon league it would it would be whole thing
3: i mean here's here's the deal like I could see it being like, "Hey, we really want to turn the the dungeon where your dragons are into a zoo." I think it, I think it would be it'd be good for for everyone.
1: Yeah, the
0: kids would love it.
3: Yeah, people could go see dragons in a zoo, but no, it's like there's dragons on the premises, and everyone's like, "Nah, I kind of want to watch a couple guys fight." <laughs> <laughs> I just feel like things have shifted, man. I mean, it's like this whole idea, like, "Well, we got to keep our traditions." It's like,
0: dude, there's dragons. I think that you're underplaying the blood sport, like the, just the just the absolute thrill of a blood sport. They're we are still... risking our lives in order to have these. Sports. Oh no,
3: no, no, no! We are risking athletes' lives.
0: It's true. Yeah, that's <laughs> to be true. clear, we're not
3: risking anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: this is blood sport. That's exactly what's happening.
3: I guess this is this is what it is, right? I mean, I guess if there was. I don't know. I mean, maybe I, I, it just seems like an it seems like a weird thing with all the other stuff going on, you know, crucifixions, beheadings. And everyone's like, yeah, but like, come on, let's bring back the pits.
0: <laughs> you're describing 2020 America.
3: That's I guess saying. I am.
0: I guess I am. But This was <laughs> Martin's ahead of his time. Yeah, we know that there's a global pandemic. It, it's, give, give us our give us our football. All right. Hey, <laughs> I loved almost everything about this i love all of the all of the intrigue at the wall with you know do you bring in the wild lanes the wall is great the wall is
3: all about i'm all about the wall and i didn't think you know no. again i didn't think we were gonna, i was gonna be in that spot but
0: i kind of you know you have this feeling about this kid ollie who's just lost his parents you're like yeah that yeah. guy's got a good point yeah that's got how can you not have that opinion and of course if you're john snow you know, you're like, well, yeah, but they're better than zombies trying to eat our brains, right?
3: Right, which is which is a fascinating concept. I mean, I really think that this is this is a great notion that we've seen in, in uh you know, graphic novels like like Watchmen, for example, right? It's uh it's the idea of an an, an other we can all agree on, right? And it's um sure. And so when you're dealing with like an undead army, it's hard to be like, well, we'll go negotiate. Like you realize this is not going to happen. So
0: so again, 2020 America, it's like there (laughs) is a global pandemic and we're like, yeah, but I really hate that guy a lot. So I'm not going to agree with that guy (laughs) on on the global pandemic. Right. No, that's fair. I loved all that. I love that uh, Stannis is a grammarian. (laughs) <laughs> like, they're, they're literally arguing about, like, undoing 8,000 years of tradition. He's like, uh, eh, it's not less. It's fewer. It's fewer, yeah. <laughs> Lose has one O. Oh. I, lo- I love there that.
3: There is no there is no godless.
0: All right, so what's one thing that worked for you in this episode?
3: Well, almost anything, like I said, almost anything with the wall. Uh, I'm, I'm super, super into was quite taken by the uh the, now the addition of uh, of grayscale.
0: Well, like yeah, the, that that was sort stone, of the big the big thing at the end the stone men, right?
3: The stone men, yeah, like that. Are there um, any
0: stone women?
3: It's a great question. I don't know. I I uh I assume they're they're
0: it's just a they're boys back. club.
3: Yeah. <laughs> they're back preparing um, you know, all the fixings for for if they're going to have a dwarf dinner, I guess. <laughs> So the stone men. Well, they're, they're, they're the stone men. I guess is the intent to just go and what?
0: What is their, What are they
3: doing? Like <laughs> they go and they, they I didn't realize that they live here and it's not great.
0: Well, yeah, uh, they they like to attack people and then make more stone men.
3: That's is that what it is? Is that, that, that all? It, is that their main goal? Is just I we don't they think want... they
0: have a goal. It's sort of like this instinctual. Like they revert to their lizard brain and
3: they've gone mad. Right? Is they've that the gone idea? Gone mad. So they've gone mad, but are they going to eat them? Or are they going to just turn them into again? Them we have
0: not met stone women. This all, this society uh, may be a lot better if there was any women in leadership,
3: right? Or the women are just like, look, send out the the stone men. They're they're dummies. Just look, they <laughs> want to go. This day, they they were well, my husband's screaming about a boat with a dwarf. So I say, go get it. Uh, uh, but uh, so, so I love
0: that. That was a great way to end. And you know what? Did, you know what was great for me. Is to see Tyrion's reaction to seeing Drogon in the sky.
3: Yeah, that. Like, was how awesome.
0: many times have I seen a dragon in this show? But seeing him encounter the dragon
3: and what it means, right, and what it means for the uh, the landscape of everything they're doing, right? Yeah, he's, he's, heard, l- he's heard about this woman with dragons, right? And he's headed towards there, but there, you know, there's there seems to be like I'm sure there's skepticism on all of it, right?
0: It's a little bit like he's the top scientist in his field, and he sees a nuclear plume for the first time. Yeah. And realizes nothing nothing is gonna be the same after this. Uh so I, I love that. And so you're you're kind of like high on that little thrill. And then just beyond his shoulder, you if you look just behind him, you see this creepy guy standing Yeah, that the the, that
3: whole sequence was was very well this weekend of direction. That was
0: very yeah, well Fantastic. Fantastic. I loved it. All right, you were gonna you had a question about the stone man? <laughs>
3: Uh, well, I, yeah, I guess I was just asking about, like, you know, what their motives are. Uh, why, why? I just think
0: they like to scratch people.
3: Yeah, and so they touch them. They just touch them, right? Is that it? It's like the Midas touch. It's yeah, only, only worse.
0: I don't know. But, it's a good. I question, mean, is yeah. it a
3: scratch? Is it a bite? Is because I mean, they're they're pulling Tyrion down, and and I guess it's because he's touching his clothes, but he never got an ankle, huh?
0: It's a cooties thing. It's, I you know, it we is. are like dealing with sort of really primal taboos like mm-hmm. incest and cannibalism.
3: <laughs> Nobody's touching cooties, I guess. Yeah.
0: Cooties is one of the most primal taboos, Steve. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, all right. But that is not my favorite part of this show. Okay. I loved when Sansa encounters Theon. mm. And she's, she kind of sees him for the first time. I think that there's a, a whole range of emotion. Like, kind of, it's kind of our surrogate brother. Right. And she's, and she's totally alone. And yet she, she believes that this guy killed her brothers. And he just looks just, he just looks horrid. And then he says, uh, you shouldn't be here. And it, it, to me, that kind of had the vibe of like, she's in a haunted house. And there's a voice that says, get out. Yeah, yeah. For me, that was sort of like uh, a little portent. Like, you have no idea what you're about to undergo in this place. Right. I think that because Sansa and Theon may be in the same boat at this point, and because there's something she doesn't know, that he didn't really kill Bran and Rickon. Right. That you've sort of got this possible alliance there. That neither one of them would would have chosen in any other situation.
3: This is the closest thing right now that she would have as an ally, and he's a pretty pretty damaged ally if he's going to be one.
0: Oh, he's the most he's the most damaged psychologically. Well, yeah, physically, yeah, not great. (laughs) It's almost like every scene, (laughs) yeah, every scene that Ramsay's in with him is psychological torture like mm-hmm. even, if, even if something is hor- horrible is, physically isn't happening even Ramsey sort of reaching out his hand and saying I forgive you
3: yeah I was we were both like yeah <laughs> then that was it we're like, huh?
0: even that psychological torture yeah Ramsey's like a he's like pig pen but instead of the cloud that goes with him wherever he goes <laughs> it's just t- the air of torture goes with
3: him. <laughs>
1: Bald Move merch beats running around naked. And they make a great gift for the Bald Move fan in your life. Join our tribe. Head over to support.baldmove.com and click on merch to start shopping. We try to make it super easy to support making podcasts at Bald Move. Just join the club. But some people aren't a joining type or maybe they're already in the club, but want to add a little bit of gratuity for an especially great season of coverage or for podcasts that really spoke to them or gave them that bit of support in a tough time for these and for whatever other reason you might have. Our tip jar is always open. Head over to support.baldmove.com and click the donate option to say, Hey, keep doing what you're doing. We appreciate it. Once again, check out support.baldmove.com for all the great ways to help me and Jim keep making the podcast you love.
0: For this week's Birds Eye View, I'd like to follow up on the question I posed to you a couple weeks ago about how knights are made in Westeros. Just to recap, there seems to be this idea that any knight can make a knight. And we see this in a few different iterations of the show and the book canon. And yet, we also have this idea that the ceremony by which a knight becomes a knight involves the Faith of the Seven and Septons and Seven Oils, etc., etc. So... How do we deal with that discrepancy? Well, well, I put out a few emails, and I got a couple that I thought were really helpful. The first is from Carol Parrish-Jameson. My thanks to Carol for permission to read her email on the podcast. So Carol writes, Martin's concept of knighthood certainly seems to draw from a wide geography and history, but it does roughly reflect what I've learned about the institution. As I understand it, particularly in the early Middle Ages, any senior knight can bestow the honor on another. However, social rank was always an important element. So I don't think it's exactly true that any knight could make a knight in the actual Middle Ages, unless those involved were of high rank. Medieval chivalric manuals make it clear that only certain individuals are fit for knighthood. So I don't know if Davos the Onion Knight would have been as easily dubbed in reality. However, it did happen that lower classes could penetrate the noble ranks through the acquisition of money and ultimately by titles the medieval fablo frequently target this kind of knight who lacks proper birthright generally and in this comic genre fails at chivalry i've always been under the impression that in certain instances such as wartime knighthood could be granted out of necessity with less regard to rank and probably less ceremony i thought this was a great answer to it because it shows you that the context really matters here in most contexts One's social rank is of crucial importance. And yet, during times of warfare, it could be that you needed more knights, and so some of the ideals could be overlooked. Interestingly enough, I got an email from Evan, who's in the Air Force, and he says that it's much the same in the modern world, that uh, ceremonies for promotion usually involve lots of pomp and circumstance for higher-ups. And while there are manuals for how to promote really everyone in the Air Force— Sometimes you overlook these depending on context. Carroll's email continues, As the concept of chivalry evolved, the ceremony of knighting became more elaborate, and the institution of knighthood became more closely associated with class and rank. The Crusades surely solidified the religious aspects of dubbing. I think Carroll's insights are very much in keeping with Martin's style as an author of creative medievalism, He really does like to push eras together, as we saw with the weaponry that the knights use. Sometimes he will grab a detail from the early Middle Ages, and he will put that with a more modern detail. And it very well could be that he's pushed together various elements of knighthood from various geography and various time periods. So maybe we have a partial explanation. And now to my email with Elio Garcia. Elio writes... The distinction between the two ways of making a knight is simply a matter of formality and, to some degree, class. So we see a parallel here with Carol's email. A nobleman will be a page, then a squire, and then there will be a formal visual, and anointing, followed by a dubbing. By the knight they have served, or the lord or king, or what have you. That is the usual path, which is very much a class one. The any knight can make a knight mantra generally refers to the less formal circumstance of a knight dubbing someone else in an expedient way. Someone who may not even be of nobility or hasn't gone through the formal process of training for knighthood. This can leave people sneering at the knight. They could be someone like Dunk, an impoverished hedge knight with no witness to his dubbing, or Sir Glendon Flowers, a base-born bastard, who was knighted in exchange for his sister's virginity. In both forms, though, someone who is believed to have been able to convey knighthood, another knight, a king, etc., is involved. Septons can anoint you and bless you, consecrating you in the seven as a part of the formal ritual, but they don't dub you with the sword or give you the accolade. So Elio's answer gives us a few bits of supporting evidence, but the thing that he adds that I did not know that I am very appreciative of is that it is absolutely crucial for the dubbing to be done by, let's call this person a secular representative, like a king or a knight. And in that sense, any knight can indeed make a knight. But ideally, that ceremony will also involve a septon to bring in the religious element. Finally, I ought to mention that I made a mistake in my previous Eye View where I was asking about Braun because it seemed very vague about how Braun was knighted. Braun was sort of my entree into the topic. But B.W. from Brisbane writes that in Storm of Swords, in Tyrion's first chapter, Braun says, and I quote, We got ourselves dabbed by the High Septon and dubbed by the Kingsguard. Took half the bloody day. With only three of the white swords left to do the honors. So that little detail suggests that... Absolutely, Braun did go through that religious ceremony. Even so, I think that Elio's email really solves the problem for us. Can any knight really make a knight? Well, yes and no. Class distinctions are still very important. And ideally, you are going to want a religious ceremony. But in less than ideal circumstances, yeah, any knight can indeed make a knight. So it seems like we have a ceremonial ideal, and then we have the general acceptance of lesser ceremonies. Of course, anything that falls short of the ideal is subject to social ridicule. If you have any more thoughts on this, email book at baldmove.com. Again, my thanks to Evan, thanks to B.W., my thanks to Carol, Paris Jameson, and my thanks to Elio Garcia. And that is all for this week.